Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh Podcast. This is episode 57. I am Sandy Jo Leonard and excited to be with you here. It's hard to believe it's been 57 episodes over the past year, and we have done a lot together. We have uh, had such great opportunities to interview and connect with so many people with so many various backgrounds and they've contributed greatly to our understanding of their lives which helps us to understand the soul and spiritual formation and our relationship with God so much better. I, I've got promised episodes coming that I have promised you that will happen, uh, one of which is uh, an interview or just a dialogue with my mom, my aunt, and my uncles, and their experiences growing up on the farm. They have such great stories, and it's just neat to hear, especially of a, a whole different generation, their experiences about growing up and family. And so that's coming as well as another promised episode with another uh, therapist. We've, we had the privilege of talking to Dr. Ashley Brooks about counseling, mental health and Christians. And we're gonna be talking with another really great therapist on an understanding of mental health in the church as well as some other uh, important topics just about how you know trauma impacts us and, and a little bit of, of dialogue about uh, the understanding of narcissism and, and some unhealthy aspects of our lives and our growth. Well today I want to talk about some historical stuff and I'm, I'm gonna tie some concepts together that you probably wouldn't have thought go together but voting rights in the United States, Jesus and the soul. Now, Jesus was not alive or on earth in an earthly human fashion during voting rights in the United States in these last few hundred years. But I want to tie some concepts together that the scripture, the Bible talks about that has just been on my mind. I, I have been preparing to teach uh, a few classes on history at a community college here in California and revisiting the history of, of voting rights in the United States um, and really taking another look at the United States history, not just from, um, you know, a, a understanding human life and uh, from a Christian perspective, but understanding um, how, how different events, how we interpret different events over the years. And though the United States is really an amazing country, and I, I'm really coming to believe it's an amazing country because of, even though it did not affect every person initially, uh, at, at least an attempted belief or a half-hearted expression of the belief that that all persons are created equal even though in the initial declaration it was all men but all persons are created equal and though you know again looking back at history the the founding fathers of the United States many of whom were deists and deists um, is a it's a type of theology that believes that that believes in God in a in a monotheistic Christian 
Judeo-Christian God, but believes that that God is not involved in daily life, you know, set the world in motion and then stepped back. There's at least some belief in a creator God who has created, as, as the declaration says, within, with unalienable rights that, um, and again, some disagreement as to how it was expressed and lived out. I, I do believe that there was some sense of a reverence for humanity that was there, that though it took many years to get to be expressed to all humans, male, female, rich, poor, all different ethnicities and heritages, that at least there was some belief there. And I, I am beginning to, I think, believe that that is what has made America great. Um, and so, uh, and, and an, ama an amazing nation, definitely not perfect, definitely not better than others. And I, I really believe that. Um, and I am not one of those who believes that God has specially designed America and set it up in place to be, you know, this great witness because we have been a terrible witness in so many aspects. And uh, I, I'm not of those who believe that this is a chosen nation like Israel and all of that kind of stuff. I think that's a lot of mythology. But I do believe that God has used America, you know, to be the, a really great sending place for missionaries, a great place of, of revival and, you know, the idea of religious freedom, I, I believe is very important. So a lot of things kind of went together well to, you know, some things went together well in the creation of the United States, kind of like the, the recipe of baking a cake, it, it put together some good ingredients. Um, not all of those ingredients were good or, or the cake didn't last maybe as long as it should have, but a lot of things went together well to at least try to understand the basic humanity and the basic rights of people. And I think that's why people want to come here. I think that's why it's been a, such a, a, a success, but there have been a lot of things that we have done wrong, a lot of areas that have been missed. And, and that's, a little bit of what I want to talk about. And then I want to tie in Jesus. Um, I, I may have shared this in some, you know, pre recent podcasts that, you know, I've been spending probably the last 12 years really reading, meditating on and studying the gospels. That's just where I was in my reading. I was reading the Bible through and had just finished the Old Testament when I felt impressed to slow down even more. At that time, I'd been reading a chapter a day, just kind of moving through the Bible, but I felt impressed to slow down even more and spend weeks, maybe months, on just uh, a, blo a paragraph at a time. So I went from going from a chapter a day to maybe a paragraph of each chapter, maybe weeks and months at a time. And it's really just allowed me to study the life and ministry of Jesus in such a beautiful way. And so everything is coming back in my looking at humanity and life to, to Jesus. And as I look at history, particularly the voting rights, it, it's really interesting to me. Um, you know, I think I've, I've just kind of unconsciously or maybe sometimes consciously accepted the idea uh, uh, early on that the progression of voting rights in the United States has been 
you know, due to a cautious desire to make sure that people knew what they were doing, knew what they were voting for. And um, it's only recent, though, that I've really understood that the early founding fathers, uh, all of whom were white, and all of whom were landowners, and all of whom had some level of wealth or income, that concept, I don't think I understood that before. And I may have heard before, but I don't know that I really, it really sunk in that early on in the establishment of the United States and America, that only white men who had land could vote. So we're talking about like, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the commitment to war starting back in 1776 and really up through the development of the Constitution, the, the development of Congress and Senate and judges, the Supreme Court, the development of, of even a president, up through the early 1800s, mid-1800s, and even into the late 1800s, um, not all, not all white men could vote. So if you don't know, it takes a while, takes until after the Civil War for, for any man to vote that would be, you know, black, um, Hispanic, really any citizen to vote. And even then there were some, some complications, not all indigenous Native Americans could vote. And um, you had to become a citizen in order to vote in the United States. So that took a while. Um, and then, of course, it's not until uh, the 19, early 1900s, um, late teens, early 1920s, that women could vote. So a good 150 years after the United States is developed, women get the right to vote. It's not until a hundred years, almost a hundred years after the United States is developed, that that most men could vote. And I I think that it is beginning to sink in as I under you know begin to really think about why voting is important. And it's not just voting at the presidential level. And if you've been paying attention to uh, elections in the United States over the last what, seven years, the, the 2016 election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was very, very contentious and surprising to a lot of people. And then the 2020 election and then the 2021 January 6th insurrection was, was a very difficult time um, and brings up additional issues of protecting the right to vote. And I think maybe it's because being a, a white female in growing up in um, Orange County, California, which is consider and considered an upper middle class part of the country. I didn't grow up middle class. Uh, that was not, not my experience being in a big family, but I came from an, uh, an upper middle class part of the part of the country. And I, there were a lot of opportunities that I had. And when I turned 18, I was very excited to vote. I was away from California. I was away at college. And so I had to do it uh, provisionally. But 
very excited to vote and, and it was never an issue for me. I, I didn't experience any type of what's known as disenfranchisement. Um, and so maybe that was the issue that I didn't really understand how important it was. Um, and even then I was really more focused on the presidential election. I didn't really understand the importance or the need or, or really the, the, the impact of voting even at, at the local level, that the ability to determine who my local elected officials are, I don't know that it hit me until I got older, until I started to see how laws really impacted me as a person. And uh, obviously the corruption that is possible in, in, in government, that is always possible, doesn't matter where you are or what government you have, it's always possible, but also seeing how, how laws really did impact me, how income tax impacted me, how, how all of that stuff is really important. And it's, and it's a privilege that not every other person in the world has the ability to determine or, or try to determine the outcome and the well-being of my life based upon who is in control and in power but also as I got older, the understanding of what power is and how, how much power you have when you are elected to government offices, uh, institutional power, power in churches, power in any type of organization. It's not, it's not until recently that it's really begin, uh, that I've begun to understand how important that is. And when you look back in particular, and there's so much that can be said about minorities in America, whether it's Chinese immigrants who were building so much of California and the railroads, and you look at Mexican immigrants and how much they have impacted and, and built the agricultural uh, centers of, of the West and even uh, industry and factories, uh, Native Americans and what has happened to them and their challenge, what, what was taken from them and their challenge to survive in the, the 500 years that Europeans have been in the United States. All of those groups and more are important, but especially when we talk about Africans and those who were enslaved in America from 1619 up through 1863, 64 in the Emancipation Proclamation. But then after that, in the age of segregation and the Jim Crow laws that continue to keep them oppressed. And then looking at the rights of women, and if you were a minority woman, you had kind of a double hit, so to speak, of disenfranchisement or struggle. But looking at the plight of, of those two groups in particular, the lack of women being able to have what is known as upward mobility, and really uh, two groups in particular, again, African Americans or, or enslaved people, but also African Americans in general, but definitely those who had been enslaved and, and come from are the offspring of enslaved people, and women, those were two groups that were specifically disenfranchised. Again, Native Americans definitely as well, but 
um, those are two groups that were specifically denied the right to vote, the right to hold office, the right to own land, uh, the right to have some type of up upward mobility. And you really begin to understand how much power is a part of that process and how much um, and why, you know, why those two groups were specifically left out. Native Americans are part of that as well, but they had their own mistreatment and challenge. But, um, you know, women as part of, you know, the other half of, of the really the, uh, the image of God to be excluded and denied so much in that struggle has been a challenge and it continues to be a challenge today. But they were denied specifically with a belief that, that they could not possibly keep up and understand that they were the weaker and the fairer sex or, or gender. And so therefore, their vote could not be counted on to be seen as rational or logical, that they didn't understand or have education. And they, it is true that they did not have access to education like white, like rich white men. Um, and so that, that led into a belief that they should not, or that they would not understand enough to be able to vote. But it's also interesting to know that poor white men did not have access to the vote. And there's, there's an interesting connection there to even after the Civil War in 1865, you have a whole population in the South of poor white men who though they could vote at that time, they ha have a, another challenge uh, beyond beyond uh, what would a, a poor white man in the north, uh, because of various laws that were in existence and those who had power, there certainly was, there were two distinct almost nations in the U.S., the north and the south, for a long time, and, and some may say it still even exists today. But the exclusion, especially in the beginning, the exclusion of poor people, women, and slaves or servants, and, and there were many white male and female servants who were excluded from the right to vote. And the, the reasons, the reasons that have been given at the time, some were honest and some were more cagey saying things like, you know, if you had land, you probably were educated and you probably, and especially if you were wealthy, you had more of a say or would want to have a say in, in the ability to make things happen. I, I you know, that type of, of logic. But really, the, it, it was about the desire to um, appeal to those who had the most power and who would have the most influence. If you're a landowner, then you would want to have a say in the things that, in the laws that are created. But that means if you're poor and you don't have land, you don't have any say in the laws that are being developed and you have 
very little opportunity for what's known as upward mobility, the the ability to pull yourself up as, as America is wont to describe, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and make a life for yourself. Well, you can't even determine the laws then that were in existence that would have been in favor of the wealthy. It's not until looking into the 18 and early 1900s that we get laws that really establish safe drinking water, that establish um, a good stable workday that doesn't allow people working 12, 13, force people to work 12, 13, 14 hours a day, that establishes a living wage that, um, that keeps children, child labor laws, children from having to work and uh, for very low wages. We don't really, it's a part of history that maybe we're not taught uh, because it's probably not, it's probably not something we want to know. But all of the people who were coming to America in the 16, 17, 18, and even still today, uh, you know, those centuries, they were wanting to be able to go to a place where they could not only survive, but thrive and make a, make a life for them and create a better life for their kids. And even though things were on the whole better here than they were in other parts of the world than in Europe and, and other places, there was less of a separation between the very rich and the very poor. There was at least the beginnings of a middle class. You still do have laws created by the wealthy at the expense of the poor who who only profited the wealthy. And I know that that's going to be a, a, a thought that will not appeal to some, that they might dismiss it. And I encourage you to go and research it because that it's just true. And it, it, there were, again, there were definitely more opportunities for, for white men and even as um, as families were struggling, women were forced to enter the workforce. And so you did have women working. And then of course you had children working because they had to, yes, you did have more involvement, but that is also something you see in other parts of the world. Yes, there were more opportunities to make wealth. Yes, but it's not as great as what we have been told. It's not as significant as what we have been told. Um, and again, I think it's because partly it, it perpetuates a narrative that, that America is this great and wonderful country and was from the beginning and everybody had equal opportunity. Um, they just didn't. And in particular, the thought that whether they were women or slaves, the thought that because they didn't have education and they didn't have access to education, by the way, they were kept from that, but because they didn't have education, because they were either weaker or inferior, as it was seen for African-Americans, that they could not logically vote for what they wanted is really, when you think about it, it's, it's actually illogical and, and really crazy. And what 
the reason why I can say that with, with you know, so, such confidence is because I go back to scripture and, you know, you look at, even in biblical times, the same ideas about women and Gentiles, minorities, the same thoughts were being perpetuated by those in power, the elites. Look at Jesus and the first century. The religious leaders who were in charge were the Pharisees, who were the, the, the rabbis who were interpreting the law, and they were the Jewish males, and only the brightest, smartest Jewish males could be rabbis. The Sadducees were the lineage, ancient lineage, lineage of the priests, going all the way back to Levi and, and the Levites. You have other groups like the Essenes who were, they were the kind of uh, monastic order that lived in the desert just waiting for the Messiah. You have what are referred to either as the nationalists um, or the zealots who were people trying to overthrow Rome and bring in, usher in the age of, of the Messiah. But the elite were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And these were Jewish men, bright, wealthy Jewish men. And then you had everybody else. You had the poor. You had women and children. And this time especially, women and children were seen as inferior and were not, did not have equal access, equal, equal opportunity. And this was, a, is, this was a great time of destitution. The stories of Jesus bringing the widow's son, you know, uh, ministering to the widow or bringing the widow's son back to life, especially in the book of Luke, that was her sole source of income. The widows, the disabled, the poor, they were not being taken care of as had been prescribed in the Old Testament laws. They, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were to take care of the poor, the widows, the orphaned. They were to take care of the beggar, even the immigrant, and yet they weren't. The New Testament, the Gospels, have so many stories of the blind beggars, the widows, the orphans, those who could not walk, who had to beg for their life, for their food. It's, it's one of the reasons why Jesus spent so much time feeding people and healing people because they literally had nothing. There was no social, social security, there was no welfare. That was to have been provided by the, the system in Israel, by the laws, and it wasn't. Women and children and the disabled and the disenfranchised were, were truly outcasts and had nothing. And yet, Jesus teaches them He allows them to learn. He gives them agency or the ability to make their own decisions. 
he gives them and shows them respect. At that time, it was not legal for women to learn or to become a disciple of a rabbi. And yet Luke tells, describes women as disciples. It uses that word to describe them. There were women disciples. And there's the great story of Mary in Luke chapter 10, sitting at Jesus's feet, listening to him. Well, that, as scholars tell us, was the posture of a disciple. Disciples would come and they would sit at their masters, their rabbi's feet, and listen to them as they taught. For Mary to be doing this indicates that she was a disciple, that Jesus was allowing her to be a disciple, to sit at his feet and listen. And in that story, it's a very brief story, it comes right after the story of the Good Samaritan. Martha, her sister, comes to Jesus and she's agitated. She's trying to get things ready for the master, the rabbi, Jesus, to, to eat. And Martha is actually doing what was expected of her at that time. She was preparing a meal. This was hospitality, showing great respect to the rabbi, the teacher, and getting things ready for the meal. And, and she needs help. And apparently she can't pull her sister away because she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you tell my sister to help me? Which seems, if you were somebody in that day and age, you would have looked at that and said, oh, that seems like a, a good request. That, that seems right. I mean, she needs help. Mary is supposed to be helping her. Jesus should intervene and tell her to help him or, or help her. But Jesus says something that is and does something that would have shocked people. And by the way, Mary sitting at his feet would have also been shocking. And Jesus says to Mar Martha, no, I'm not going to tell her to help you. Because she's involved in listening to me. She is showing her desire to learn from me, which is far greater than any type of meal or meal preparation. And he says she has chosen what, what is better, but not in the sense that he is putting down Martha, because we all got to eat. But what he is trying to let her and everybody else know is that he's not going to intervene in Mary's agency, her choice. He's not going to interrupt and say, Mar uh, Mary, you've, you've chosen wrong. Go help Martha. But he also, it, it appears, I don't think that he specifically told her to come and sit. There, there 
is an implied sense of agency and free will that Mary has had enough uh, ability on her own to desire to choose to sit at Jesus's feet and want to learn and absorb everything she can from Mary. And it's not that Martha has made a bad choice and Mary has made a good choice. Mary has just chosen that she wants to learn and hear from Jesus. And that that is a spiritual choice that is far better than any other choice. And that Jesus was not going to deny her agency, her free will to choose to be his disciple. You see that a lot in the Gospels, that Jesus gave people agency. He gave them the ability to choose. He acknowledged their humanity and their free will. When he said, come, follow me, he gave them a choice between being his disciple and choosing to remain where they were. Jesus allowed people the opportunity to choose. He respected their ability, whether they were children, women, Gentiles, religious leaders like Nicodemus, ostracized women like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and this Jewish woman Mary, to choose him, to follow him, to be his disciple. Jesus showed respect. He gave people back their dignity, their humanity, their agency at a time when people did not have a whole lot of choice. When we go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was essentially about choice, free will, agency. That God respected Adam and Eve and humanity so much. And I, I think, and, and this is shared by the point of view of other scholars, that some scholars, that that are being made in the image of God, that one of the things that reflects our, our reflection of God's image is our ability to choose our free will, our agency. That God created that from the very beginning. And yet that agency and that free will has been denied time and again throughout the history of humanity. And it is the very thing that in spiritual formation that God is actually shaping and changing. 
and it leads to the development of our character. That the more we grow in our relationship with Christ, the more he shapes and forms our will so that our desire is to choose him rather than to choose not him, anything that is not him. That we want to choose him and we want to do his will rather than not. When the founding fathers of the United States and as we progress, I love, well, they really did not have a high, they had and they didn't have. This is the, the conundrum. This is the paradox uh, of humanity. We are complex creatures. We can believe one thing on, on one hand, but not fully believe it on the other. I, I sense that in these founders, I do believe that they had uh, some respect for humanity. It, it only went so far because they did not believe that women or, or slaves or, or uneducated or poor had the same abilities as the wealthy white male. But they kind of, you know, kept, put themselves in a bind by creating a culture that demanded freedom. They maybe inadvertently opened up the door. The revolution and the creation of the United States opened the door for freedom for all people, even if they didn't realize it at the beginning. Because it was not just Lincoln and you know white men fighting in the Civil War and white abolitionists who were fighting for the the enslaved person. It was the enslaved person themselves. It was free blacks. It was women pushing for the end of slavery. And then when we get to the right to vote for women, it was women and men, but women pushing for their own freedom. It's an important part of history that we don't always talk about. We can look at, especially in the Civil War, we can look, look at the white savior, the white male as the savior of the black man, the enslaved person, but it wasn't. It was the slaves themselves. It was free blacks. It was women. And yes, it was white men, but it was all of them combined, changing and pushing for the freedom of enslaved peoples. And then it was women who were at the forefront of pushing for women to be able to vote. What this tells us is that they were fighting for their own agency. They were fighting for their own free will. They were fighting for their ability to determine their destiny. Our souls thrive under our, our ability to choose and determine our destiny. Now, a destiny that is apart from God 
will lead to its own ruin. It will choose, but its choices will lead to its own ruin. But a soul that is free to choose God and choose and does choose God and has agency to make choices in its own life to choose God will thrive because we were created. Our soul was created to choose and to have free will and to have agency. And when we do it and when we choose God day after day after day after day, we grow into spiritual formation and our characters are shaped and formed into the likeness of Christ and we begin to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and it comes out of us naturally without any effort because we are living like Christ. It is a beautiful reality that God created for us. And it is that part of the United States that I can love and appreciate so much that I have still a problem with and uh, that is concerning. But that part that has led us to the agency and free will of so many and that hopefully will continue to push us towards more agency and free will and rights and opportunities for everyone. And within that fosters a desire to grow and serve Christ and be spiritually formed. And my prayer and hope and desire for you is that you grow in that reality for yourself. And that if I can help in any way, I would love for you to visit my website, The Spiritual Reformation, thespiritualreformation.com. There are resources there, blogs, and of course this podcast, as well as courses and, and individual one-on-one -on -one opportunities to grow in your relationship with Christ. And I would love to help with that. TheSpiritualReformation.com, www.TheSpiritualReformation.com. Well, thanks for listening to episode 57, and I will talk to you next time.